Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I am David Chen, and with me are... Devendra Hardwar. Jeff Kanata. And joining us today, she is a staff writer at Nerdist.com, Lindsay Romaine. Lindsay, how are you doing today? I'm doing super well. Thank you for having me. So glad to have you on. You know, Lindsay, when we were uh, about to review Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, your name was the first one that came to mind, because like, I feel like you have a special affinity for this particular story, do you not? I do, yeah. It's been a, a long time kind of gestating interest in the Mansons and Sharon Tate and everything that this movie's about, so definitely. Yeah, so we're going to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood later today as our full featured review. Uh, Not to spoil anything, but is that what this movie's about? Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to get to that later. Before we do that, we got some what we've been watching, and we're going to go over a couple of emails as well. Later, during our review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we are going to count down our favorite Quentin Tarantino films. So we're going to give our list of Quentin Tarantino film rankings uh, during the review. So that should be a lot of fun as well. So, yeah, before we get to any of that, though, let's talk about emails. This week, we got an email from Clara, who commented on our conversation last week about the Cats trailer. Uh, Clara wrote in to slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Hey guys, big fan of the show, and had to write in with a brief defense of the Cats movie. Admittedly, they made the Cats a weird size, but other than that, I think this trailer was actually impressive, and it made me interested to see the movie. Unlike the three of you, I have seen the Broadway show and grew up reading T.S. Eliot poems and listening to musicals, so let me point out a couple things. One, as Jeff mentioned, Cats is really a show about dancers and choreography. So, yes, they had to use real people and dress them like cats. That's the whole point. Two, Cats is a weird AF musical... And that's what's so great about it. I'm genuinely excited that this movie seems to have had the guts to lean into the weirdness. Three, after shitting all over how bizarre Cats is, the three of you went on to gush over Marvel movies for a good 20 minutes. I'm sorry, but the fact that we live in a world where hyper-masculine actors dressed up in suits is the norm, and basically the only choice in movies we seem to get these days, I find it ridiculously hypocritical that the internet masses can't open their uh, minds up to something a little bizarre. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying the movie's going to be awesome, but I don't think the preview deserves the harsh response it's getting. So that email comes from I'm, Clara to slashfilmcast.gmail.com. I'm really glad that she wrote that in to us because I, I felt like we missed a a perspective uh, of, of somebody that actually is looking forward to this and has some fondness already for the property, which clearly, you know, Cats is forever. So there's got to be somebody who, 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 you know, a lot of somebody's probably um, like Clara. And I'm glad to hear that perspective. I also left that conversation feeling like we were a bit too harsh. I'm, you know, I love the swinging for the fences, going weird, yeah, love it. If it if it works in the context of the full film, awesome. But I think it's kind of undeniable that the look is off-putting or immediately jarring at the least. Uh, and I think I would say the same thing and have said the same thing about comic book properties. When the costume design choices are jarring or immediately off-putting, I think we comment on them. And so I, I think that's really more what it's about. It may, maybe it is weird that the norm is skin tight spandex uh, and capes and cowls and such, but there are plenty of times where we made a stink about things that look strange and off-putting or the, an odd choice by a filmmaker in that genre as well. So I don't necessarily think we just give all that stuff a pass 
a priori. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Lindsay, I want to ask you, you watched the Cats trailer, I assume. What did you think of it? Uh, I'm going to have to side with you guys. I thought it was pretty bizarre, <laughs> a little bit scary. Uh, it's more, it's less like they're, they're in costumes and more the kind of uncanny valleyness of the weird, like CGI yeah. going on. It really so... makes you question your humanity. I think like <laughs> yeah. that sort of thing. Like, have we you're created like... a new race of cat people? That's what it looks like. Yeah. You're like looking into the void of humanity or something. It's very strange. So I don't know. <laughs> and Clara is right. We didn't even bring that up on the show, but Based on the proportions in the in the trailer, they're they're not even cat size. They're like miniature cat size, right? They're like yeah. It's really the proportions that I find the most offensive. They're about like the cat Smurfs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the proportions are really disorienting because the whole time your mind is trying to square that circle of yeah. hey, these are cats, right? Cat sized cats uh, played by humans, but in fact they're not cat sized cats. They are. Smurf cat size cats. It's like, honey, I shrunk the cats. Yeah, (laughs) indeed. Well, thanks for writing in, uh, Clara. And of course, you can always write into us at slashfilmcast.gmail.com. There's a couple of other emails uh, we'll get. Oh, actually, you know what? Let's do one more. Let's do one more before we get started here. This one comes in from Dan. Dan Lance writes in, hello, Dave and friends. My friend and I have both wanted to start a movie podcast for a while and have been discussing ideas and getting equipment together. We both understand that we need to come up with a new idea to stand out, but that's proving to be difficult as every idea seems to be taken. We had a whole concept drawn out where one of us comes up with a movie they have seen and the other hasn't. That way you get the fresh perspective. It was to be called, How Have You Not Seen... To our crushing dismay, this podcast already exists, yet they haven't posted anything since 2017. If we ended up borrowing a few ideas from different podcasts that we like, is that a no-no? Is it even possible to have anything completely original when everyone seems to have a podcast these days? So that email comes in from Dan, who wants to know uh, what our advice is for starting a new podcast, in particular a movie podcast. The answer to the second question is, yes, it's impossible. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. it's impossible. (laughs) It's impossible. I, I think that in terms of premise, like in terms of a podcast premise, uh, it is very difficult to come up with something new. And I think I have this philosophy of podcasting or creating any work that you want to be first, different, or best in order to do something. Um, you want to be the first that person that does something. You want to be uh, the best at doing something, or you want to be different than everyone else. Different is extremely difficult in this environment because uh, we have reached peak podcast according to the New York Times. Uh, thousands of podcasts are created every year, and there's, there's all these different premises for them, and somewhere in there, somebody's got to have something that uh, you are doing or interested in doing. So I would say yeah. you got to do something either the, where, where you're the first at something or you're the best at doing something, right? Where you yeah. are uh, distinguishing yourself because of how good you are at it uh, or you are doing something before uh, anyone else or you're doing it differently than other people. Um, and uh, that there's something about your personality or the mix of personalities that you can't get anywhere else. That's that's what I'd recommend. And and if if that doesn't exist, then uh, by all means, still make your podcast. But I don't know that like make it for you and not necessarily to get a large audience. Because I think yeah, it yeah, will that's be hard. exactly it. I, yeah. I think it will be hard to get a large audience if if you're not you know one of those things I just said. Yeah. Don't um, look at numbers. Don't like don't obsess over that. Make it for you and your friends. And also to get experience for the next thing you do will you'll have that experience behind you. You know, you'll know how to set it up and how to have a conversation and everything. 
Uh, Jeff or Lindsay, any advice on how to create a uh, podcast? I don't have any advice for how to create one. I will just say as someone who listens to them, the thing that usually hooks me in is less the concept and more the people, you know, the way that they interact with each other and the the personalities. That's like what keeps me tuning in. So I think as long as you and your friend have like, you know, camaraderie and stuff that translates really well to that kind of medium, I don't know that the concept matters as much. I agree. I agree. But uh, my bar for that, though, Lindsay, is pretty high in terms yeah, of, yeah, yeah. like, because <laughs> I, I think I think one of the things I've realized, you know, I, I will often, people often send me podcasts to listen to, and I'll listen to many of them, and, and some of them are very good, and others are, are not very good. And one of the things I, I quickly realized is there is a huge gap between how much fun the people on the <laughs> podcast are having and how fun the <laughs> podcast is to listen to, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And just like be aware that that gap might exist. For instance, when we do the show on the Slash Homecast, I don't know if you can tell, I'm miserable 100% of the time. And he's uh, doing that specifically so as to reduce that gap, right? He does not, <laughs> he knows that listening to this show is a chore yeah, for most people. Yes, yes. And Devendra and I are having a blast, and Dave just feels just a responsibility to, to balance that out. And I, I am just miserable utterly. all the time. And I think that like, the, uh, how much you're enjoying listening to this is equal to how I feel. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> yeah. so I, I'm like closing you're the that gap. Surrogate. Yeah. You're the audience surrogate. Yeah. I'm closing I, I that gap. And I just think that if you're starting a show, just, you know, in all seriousness, be aware that there might be a gap, right? And just I don't be know if that's, a, I don't know if that's a great, a great advice. I think you do have to have fun or else nobody else is going to have fun. But yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, <laughs> People, uh, the the question I get asked most is, you know, how do you, how do you how do you get into podcasting? How do you make your living doing podcasting? And I always say, build a time machine, go back to two thousand seven, make a podcast. <laughs> it's it's like I, blogging. It's it. also it's like becoming a YouTube star as well. Like right, there is yeah. a time when these things are kind of new and fresh, and you're in there at the beginning, and that really helps. Really helps yeah. to be one of the first. But I will say, um. Try to have a point with whatever you're doing, because I, I don't think anybody really wants to listen to just a conversation between friends, um, at least at this point, because that's every podcast. So that's the sort of like thing you don't want to fall into. I'm doing a tech podcast and I know there are million like there are a ton of tech podcasts out there. Uh, I, I'm not doing anything super different, but I am trying to like provide a service for the few people who, you know, who want to like get tech tips or something from me. And that's been fun. I enjoy doing that. So I think like doing it for that sort of reason is worth it. And you know, uh, plug the show, Devendra. Give give us the URL for that thing. Oh yeah. That is the no more tech podcast, uh, no more tech.net. That's no with a K. Uh, but you know, it's a short thing. Uh, I, I miss my it days. I miss like, just like helping people fix their tech problems. And this is a simple way to like do that. And I bring on guests and stuff and you know, it's going to go through some changes, but I will say like by doing that, I got invited to like another show um with some people i really enjoy like clive thompson who's a tech writer that you know he's been doing this for a while i know you like his work dave yeah um but if i wasn't doing that little thing that nobody listened to this one like producer for this other show wouldn't wouldn't have like realized oh i can also do this maybe they missed my other work so it's stuff like that you never know why opportunities will open up just do your thing do it for the love of it yeah, I'll add one more quick thing uh, i just to underscore what you were saying dave uh, I, I don't think it, that Advice applies just to podcasts, but to any artistic endeavor. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, I'd love to claim this as my own, but I will actually credit where credit is due. Uh, I spent the weekend with uh, big time Hollywood director Dan Trachtenberg, and uh, one of the conversations that we had this weekend was um, he said he always asks himself what what is this 
going to do that no one else can do? What what does this work that I'm if I'm going to choose to make this thing, what does it do that nothing else does? And I think too often in podcasting, the answer to that question is, it's us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what is it? What is what is what, what do we have that nobody else has? Us, you know. And I think um, too often people are just like, because we're great. And and I think that's a part of it. You have to you have to uh, feel like the conversation that you're having is worthwhile. But also, I think there has to be another layer there too of of what do you what do you bring into the table that other people aren't bringing to the table. Yeah. I don't have an answer for our show, but you know, we were here, we've been here a long time. So yeah. uh, we get a pass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, speaking of conversation with Dan Trachtenberg, uh, on my new podcast, culturally relevant, I, I have a one hour chat with Dan about his whole process. And I'd recommend you check that out at culturally relevant show.com. It has a lot more insights like the kind that Jeff just referred to. Uh, and, uh, that episode should be live as you're listening to this. So check it out. But also, uh, agreed, Jeff, that the the number one question you need to ask yourself is what is a reason somebody should listen to this instead of doing literally anything else right <laughs> what right. what is what is the reason that uh, what can they get out of my podcast that they cannot get anywhere else if you do not have an answer for that question then your listener probably will not have an answer either and uh, so that's just something you should reflect on before you you launch mm -hmm. any endeavor and I also say consider new mediums by the way like yeah. there's I was it's, just, it's not just podcasting, like game streaming is the thing now. Like I've, I've always thought like there could be a good way to tie in conversations around like while you're playing a game or something. So experiment. Explore. I was just about to get to that, which is that yeah. it's interesting, you know, whenever people ask for advice on how to get into media or into the publishing industry, uh, the advice is always terrible because <laughs> the paths yeah. that we took are essentially unavailable at this point. Yes. Right? Like, like all the paths we took to get where we are, if somebody tried them today, it would be extremely difficult for them to succeed doing that. And so uh, I have to say that what you want to think about, as Devinder said, is new media. You know, what what is the next podcasting that's going to be huge? Um, I, I think that uh, there is going to be a generation of people who become millionaires off of TikTok. I'm not 100% yeah. serious, right? And uh, I will not be one of them, but I think one of our listeners might be if you get into it, you know, if you can master that form uh, yeah. before anyone else. I will I, say, uh, looking at TikTok, by the way, is like the end of Saving Private Ryan for me. Of just like <laughs> going from old, you know, old where, where, like, where oh. Matt Damon becomes like super yeah. old, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, okay, this is where we are. I get it. I was just gonna say, I have no idea what TikTok is. So. <laughs> oh man, oh, the it's, kids are into it. Lindsay. It's huge. It, it's huge. It's gonna be huge, and uh, I actually quite enjoy it myself. So it's basically Vine. Vine with yeah. music. Come on, it's Vine. It's Vine with music. That's right. Yeah, very good. Very good description. And um, we all know how much Vine ruled the world you know what jeff well, you know how it could have it could have jeff if the parent company didn't kill it okay uh -huh. give them give mine a chance to grow that's all they needed all right well thanks for your emails to slash filmcast at gmail.com hope that advice was somewhat helpful uh <laughs> let's get to what we've been watching just a few things what we've been watching this week uh i had a chance to check out the weekly have you all heard of the weekly this is the mm -hmm. uh the new york times documentary series and they're doing an interesting thing where it airs on Sunday nights on FX, and then the next day it's available on Hulu, which is it's rare that a show has done something like that. I think it's pretty interesting. This week's episode was pretty out there. Uh, it's about <laughs> these people that message uh, lonely women on Facebook using profile photos of 
soldiers who are like good looking and buff and form relationships with them and then uh, convince the woman to send them money and iTunes gift cards. And the the central story of this week's episode of The Weekly, which is also written about at the New York Times dot com, uh, is about this woman that ended up sending like twenty five to thirty thousand dollars to one of these soldiers uh, of of her and her husband's life savings. And the story goes into very strange and tragic places from there. Uh, but I, I found this episode to be very uh, interesting, very much a comment on our times. Uh, and a very well done episode of a documentary. It's like an hour long. Most episodes are 30 minutes. Uh, and it was interesting to reflect because I've seen a lot of commentary on this. Like, what are the things Facebook could do to stop this? One of the things that Facebook could do is prevent people from uploading like duplicate profile photos, right? Like if Facebook has a profile photo and then you attempt to upload somebody else's profile photo as your own, like it could stop you or something like that. Uh, and on the one hand, I feel like maybe that's true. Maybe that would help. But on the other hand, is like if somebody is can be convinced to send twenty five to thirty thousand dollars to a complete stranger they've never met, like is there really that much that could stop them? You know, yeah. It's I, I'm not I'm I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know. Uh, but I do think Facebook could probably do more. Uh, so anyway, it's an interesting topic to reflect on, and uh, that is a topic of this week's episode of the Weekly. Um, so recommend people check that out. Full disclosure, I do have a friend who who is a director of photography on that show, and uh, she does an amazing job. So that's the weekly. It's on FX and then on Hulu. I've been buying up Criterion discs a lot recently. There's a, a Barnes & Noble sale for Criterion discs, uh, and I've been trying to like buy up a bunch of physical media, tr- trying to connect with some older films. Mm-hmm. You know, what, What's your to- approach to that, by the way, Dave? Because... There's always a Criterion sale, right? Like it's it's like at least several times a year, I think. Yeah. Like it just feels like it happens a lot. So how do you differentiate this time versus all the others? I, well, I don't. I don't actually. Th- I think you're right. It is a couple times a year. It's like three times a year, maybe. There's a Criterion yeah. sale. So yeah. this is one of the times. And you know, I usually try to get a threshold of twenty dollar per blue twenty dollars per Blu-ray. You know, like that's a good amount. That's like considered cheap for Criterion discs. And mm-hmm. so as long as it's like around $20 per Blu-ray, uh, I'll consider doing it. Um, so, uh, and then usually I'm so overwhelmed by choices that I will tweet out, you know, hey, what should I get for Criterion? And then just simply accept what random people tell me to buy. Um, because it's uh, it's overwhelming. So many choices. Uh, so many choices. So yeah. If only there were a service in which you could just watch a Criterion cho- you know, choice whenever you want. <laughs> It'd be great. Uh, potentially, yeah. Yeah. Um, I will say, you know, something I realized, like, looking over all the Criterion discs I bought is that, like, a lot of Criterion movies are really serious and depressing, right? Like, <laughs> it's like, I'm looking at my collection, and, like, the Criterion. vanishing. <laughs> What'd you say, Jeff? I said they put the tear in Criterion. Yeah, like, mm. I got um, Don't Look Now, uh, The Vanishing. I recently watched Straw Dogs, the original, for the first time. Oh, God. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's not that's not a happy movie, you know? Uh, but I'll tell you what is a happy movie. Uh, Police Story, uh, one and two, which just hit Criterion, starring Jackie Chan. Uh, I just want to give a, b- a big plug for this movie because it is still incredible. Uh, I mean, Jackie Chan's movies were an inspiration for many people. Like, you know, uh, they've been cited by people like Edgar Wright, and uh, who, by the way, is a part of the special features for this uh, disc set. Uh, as well as Gareth Evans, who did uh, the Raid movies. I mean, 
he is uh, a master at the top of his game. And the police story movies are just ludicrous movies. They, they, there's uh-huh. no plot. They're literally called police story. Uh, there, there's nothing. <laughs> the first, to them. I, I think the first movie has a good setup. I just rewatched my Criterion Blu-ray too. Like that, that's solid. The second one is sort of like the second one. Oh, is I'm just, in this shit again. Yeah, it's, it's all a, happening. All it's Die Hard. It's Die Hard with a vengeance, basically. The yeah. second one is like complete nonsense, but <laughs> it shows a you know, a physical at like actor, physical martial artist at the top of his game, uh, and willing to subject himself to punishment and torture for your entertainment. I mean, he's basically like the Asian Tom Cruise of his day, uh, you know, when uh, referring to Tom Cruise doing all these crazy stunts and almost killing himself to uh, make the Mission Impossible films. Uh, I think it's a great set of discs and it is this the movie, best. These movies have never looked better. Yeah, they've never I looked better. Like, yeah. I grew up watching like third or fourth VHS copies yeah. of these films, like with crappy uh burned in subtitles and the video quality was so bad you couldn't make out the words sometimes like that's what i grew up on so seeing these you know seeing these discs this they look pristine it's yeah. astounding yeah yeah i mean i i watched them uh i i'm pretty sure i bought like bootleg dvds off the side of the road in new york city was some uh-huh. of my first exposure where like the subtitles like don't even fit on the screen you know like there's like cut off uh, that's yeah. my first exposure that's to these movies. Stuff. Yeah, that's that's old school. Yeah, yeah. so I highly recommend Police Story One and Two on Criterion. Must purchase for anyone who's interested in martial arts films. They are classics. So uh, that's what I've been watching this week. Devendra, what have you been watching? Um, well, you know, just quickly, if you if th- there are very few really happy Criterion movies, as you brought up, Dave. Uh, one I will recommend to everybody and you, Dave. Like you, you should have bought this. Is Tom Popo. Yeah, everyone. Oh, I have that. I have that. That was one of my purchases. Have you seen it? I have not seen it yet. I have not seen it yet. So go go watch that movie. That movie will make you. It'll make you appreciate life a lot more. Like it's it's a very hopeful, beautiful film, and it's something I return to often. And when the world is crazy, that movie just like kind of makes everything make a little more sense. So I love it. That's definitely a happy criterion. Uh, I've also been watching uh, the season four of Veronica Mars on Hulu. This is the reboot after the movie from a couple of years ago. And then, you know, it's been on several. It was it CW and uh, WB Network, I think, before that. Um, something like that. Like this has been a long going series. Very devoted fan base. I am one of those people. I helped kickstart the movie, which was not so great. The, the movie is like if, if you think of like pure fan service, uh, something created through the will and love of fans. That's um, basically that movie. You know, it's very fan servicey. It didn't really. It was. It was just not that great. Um, and I also probably kickstarted more than I should have. Uh, but this season four on <laughs> you're Hulu, still like that, paying off. You're right. still paying off uh, the Veronica Mars movie. Basically, oh, definitely. Point. I have a shirt. I have a couple things from that. But uh, the yeah, the regret of how much money I kickstarted that for, just because I love this series so much. Um, I'm it, so yeah. curious what the amount is, but I'm not going to ask you on the air. It's uh, it, it's yeah, I'm not proud of it. Um, <laughs> but I love my pop culture is the thing, and like here's the thing, Veronica Mars, in many ways, like uh, it had what two, three seasons on TV, and it felt like. There was always need for more. I think my heart still hurt a little from like Firefly, never getting enough time to like live on. So it, that series kind of popped up like I think a couple years after Firefly. Uh, I loved it so much I wanted to continue. So th- that was my justification. Season four on Hulu. It is back. Uh, we're back in Neptune. We're back with Veronica, played by Kristen Bell, uh, with her father. Um, 
like it's it's the old series kind of brought back again except 10 to 15 years later and there's good and bad to that like i think the really cool thing about veronica mars was that it was basically like a hard-boiled detective series starring a high school girl and i I think the series was really well written the characters were all really like on point and it was doing stuff that like you typically see in like joss whedon shows and in fact like joss whedon was a huge fan of veronica mars he was even like guest starring in it at one point so i can understand like why um yeah it's i can understand why the show became so popular uh season four on hulu is basically more of the same but i have to say i i kind of like that it's still around i hope we get more um, there are certain things I wish it had done more of. It does feel like we're just kind of in the same place again. We're in the same town, kind of solving a, a mystery of a mystery bomber around the town. And nothing feels like more, I guess, elevated than the original series. Like, it doesn't feel like we've really moved on much. Even the character relationships haven't really changed much. But by the end, I think there are some big changes. Um, I think it really kind of shakes up the world a little. Uh, I hope we see the series continue and I hope like it evolves a little because uh, there was an unproduced pilot of Veronica Mars. Um, I think they included it in the final DVD season, but there was like an FBI series that the creator Rob Thomas had like piloted and they just kind of put the short up there. It was a really cool idea. It was basically her being like Clarice Starling or something. And I would have loved to see that. And maybe the show should have gone in that direction rather than bring everything back home. So yeah, I hope it has time to grow. Still satisfied, but it's not as uh, not as great as I wanted it to be. But I have to say, it's a lot more satisfying than something like uh, Stranger Things season three. I'll put it that way. Well, that's Veronica Mars season four, and it's available right now on Hulu. Very controversial ending. I have not gotten to the end of it myself, but I did start watching season four because uh, seen any of the other. I haven't seen any of the other things, but my wife wanted to watch <laughs> season four, and so we're like, you know, we're well, watch this is four. a show where it's like, uh, you don't you don't just watch season four of The Wire, okay? <laughs> You don't just you don't just do that. You don't just watch season four of The Sopranos. All right, you got to trying to support what your interests were to address. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> I will say this whole series like hinges on the relationships and the characters, and it's like if you don't have that background, it's it is it is much worse. I will say that like you will your enjoyment of whatever the season is is, is probably not going to be much if you don't understand. Like, all right, all right. Well, I I quite enjoyed the first couple episodes, so but maybe I would be getting a lot more out of it anyway. Veronica Mars season four on Hulu right now. Before we get to our review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and rank our Quentin Tarantino movies, um, we got to thank all the people who donated to the podcast. Big thanks to Andre Mitchell for subscribing at the rate of $2 per month. And uh, also we got a couple of donations with some special messages here. Uh, Connor H. uh, wants to donate to say, I love you, Mindy. And then he also says, Jeff, each week I'm glad I get to hear about three rad dudes from a time loop stuck in 82 who need to discuss the latest games, movies, and geek news with Dave and Devendra 2. Which, uh, I don't know if that was the original theme song there, but... Well, close. It was a, it's a reference to the old Totally Rad show. No, I know. I know, I know what <laughs> it is. I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. And uh, um, nice... It's, it's funny to, to follow up I Love You, Mindy, with... <laughs> hey, remember that, that TV show? I feel like we... Minimized. I love you, Mindy. I love you, Mindy. Hey, that's great. <laughs> he loves you, Mindy. He loves you. I feel like this is the first time he's said it. We got this email from Brian and Ati from Chicago, Illinois, 
who write in about the Summer Movie Wager, which is our yearly wager. You can join at thesummermoviewager.com. Brian writes in, as the summer nears its end, we wanted to share with you all something we did within our company, HMB Legal Counsel, a law firm headquartered here in Chicago, to have a little summer fun with a slash film guest. You'll see a write-up on the contest in this email, but Ati and I thought our contest could be best summarized in the form of a limerick. Nine law firms out of ten stress only work again and again. This year, we spice things up by creating the Slash Homecast Wager Cup. Surely 30 people can't lose to Dave Chen. Whoa. Pretty rough limerick, but I... Yeah, but the sentiment even rougher. (laughs) As the limerick suggests, we did get 30 people from HMB into our contest. So Ati and I are each donating $150 this week as required by our contest rules. You'll wow. see there's a side wager between us uh, as to who funds the prizes. In case you're curious, Ati has the inside track for now with Spider-Man likely to eke out fourth place over Aladdin. However, our side bet may very well come down to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to decide the winner, which means Ati is in the position of rooting against the movie he already has tickets to see twice this weekend. Finally, wow. to address the elephant in the room, and we can't believe this might happen, but Dave Chen shares the lead for the field of the HMB plus slash homecast group. So we're pretty motivated to make sure rocket man gets bumped from the top 10. If that's in question, there might be an HMB summer outing to see Hobbs and Shaw in the near future. Thanks for all the uh, the fun you guys provide each week until next time. Stay culturally relevant. Those guys. So, that's awesome. Really nice of them to put that together. That's awesome. It's, it's awesome. And when you read down to the rules that they wrote for their office, uh, they write here in the rules for their office, they're, they're doing their own summer movie wager. They write, quote, as a potential bonus award for the grand prize winner, if that person also beats all the members of the podcast and guest hosts who aired their predictions on the rankings episode, the grand prize winner will get another $50. And if, but only if, Dave Chen is the winner amongst the podcast group, then if the grand prize winner at HMB beats Dave Chen, where the others have failed, there is a $100 cash bonus in it for you. Wow. That would be on <laughs> top of the $50 cash bonus and the $100 gift card, $250 of prize awards to ensure that someone beats Dave Chen. This is better bounty. than our actual summer movie wager. Yes. It's yeah. way higher stakes. Full on yeah. bounty on your head, Dave. Uh, yeah, and you know what? At first, I was grossly offended when I read that, but then I realized, <laughs> you know what? This is actually awesome because somebody who beats me the best at this game should get a lot of money, right? <laughs> Somebody who well, beats the best should be rewarded, right? I I'm I haven't really been paying attention to the wager, but I'm feeling like I'm doing pretty good right now. Yeah. I mean, if you're following the Summer Movie Wager on Twitter, at SummMovieW, you might have noticed that Jeff has basically been mathematically eliminated from the wager this year. <laughs> yeah, well, the, there's, there's been like a chart of our chances, and somehow <laughs> Jeff's is like beneath the screen. It's just like, <laughs> doesn't exist anymore. It is zero percent, which is actually an accomplishment. Like it's actually 0% hard. Zero percent to win, but you know what? I'm thinking there might be a strong surge. Zero uh, percent possibility of winning, which I'm still feeling like you know doing pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it it really is like a challenge to get zero percent. You know? Yeah. I think, uh, but I think uh, Jermaine it, asked. It, we're still in July, you guys. <laughs> We're in there's, July. Still, there's still six weeks left, and he, <laughs> Jeff is already at zero percent. Um, it's anybody's game. Yeah. I, I think that uh, Jermaine asked Dennis, who runs Summer Movie Wager, uh, about uh, like what would need to happen for Jeff to win, and the answer is Hobbs and Shaw needs to make more money than Aladdin, which is three hundred forty-five million dollars. <laughs> which I don't think is going to happen. hasn't Hasn't come out yet. You don't know. 
I don't think it's going to happen. Before we move on to the, our next donors, Lindsay, I want to ask you, like, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you, you weren't, I don't know if you participated in this year's wager, but like, what have you felt about the box office this summer? Like, has it felt like a, a robust and, and good situation to you? Like, what, what, how are you feeling about summer bo- box office this year? I haven't been following it super closely, but I do know that like a lot of the big tent poles kind of failed, uh, yeah. which is interesting and gives me like a weird kind of hope about original <laughs> projects kind of <laughs> swinging back around and making money. Um, so yeah, that's really, I don't remember exactly what Once Upon a Time in Hollywood made, but I, it was a lot. So uh, yeah, it's, I'm hoping that, <laughs> that the sort of franchise, you know, the, the minimal, the men in blacks that no one cares about anymore are kind of on their way out. I hope that's what it proves, but yeah. Uh, movies that people thought would do really well, like uh, Men in Black International uh, and Godzilla King of Monsters didn't do so hot. Uh, and movies that, that people thought were going to do extremely well did only pretty good, like uh, Secret Life of Pets 2 only did pretty good. Yeah, but good. you know what people love? They love that live action remake of the animated thing. So yeah. get ready for <laughs> uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs live action. <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's owned by Sony, actually, Jeff. But yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. Everybody's jumping on that bandwagon now. Yeah, and that's, once that's upon my point, <laughs> once upon a time in Hollywood, uh, made forty million dollars, which is very strong for a two and a half hour long movie that's not based on anything uh, comic booky. It's also Quentin Tarantino's best opening weekend, unadjusted for inflation. So uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's very encouraging when a movie like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood does well. So. Uh, glad to hear it, even though I needed to stay out of the top 10 for me to win the summer movie wager this year. So <laughs> glad, good opening weekend, Quentin, but let's like hold, cool, cool your horses on, on the next weekends, shall we? Uh, <laughs> all right. What else? Uh, okay. We got this email from, uh, this, uh, listener at TV is great on Twitter. He writes here, if there's anyone listening to this that lives in the Charlotte, North Carolina area and has AMC A-list, Tweet me at TV is great so we can go see some movies together. I want some slash film buddies. Also, good work, uh, David, Devendra, and Jeff. Oh, I want this to happen so badly. Yeah, so tweet, tweet TV. at TV I S G R E A T. TV is great. Tweet. Uh, let's let's make some love connections or if, if you're friend in, connections. If you're in Charlotte, North Carolina, now those who listened to last week's episode of the podcast may remember that uh, I attempted in a very crappy way to connect several members of the podcast by announcing that there would be a meeting of slash filmcast listeners at Twain's in Decatur, Georgia at 9 PM on July 26, 2019. And, and that like one of our listeners said, Hey, meet at Twain's at 9 PM on July 26, 2019. And I read that on the air. And of course I assumed that they would meet and they'd take photos of, and you know, it'd be, it'd be a great, awesome event of slash filmcast people like moderately spontaneous, you know, very fun, a beautiful tribute to what the internet is capable of. Instead, I got this email from Furzan from Decatur, Georgia, who says, "Quote," uh, and, and the subject is called "Tragedy at Twain's." Uh oh. Furzan <laughs> writes, "I live near Decatur, Georgia, and I went to Twain's." At 9 p.m. on July 26, 2019. Being a Slash Filmcast zombie from way back, I was thrilled to get a chance to meet some fellow film fans. Unfortunately, Jamie, uh, Jordan, and John were nowhere to be found. 
I looked like a madman walking up and down through this bar over and over again. Eventually, I went to the front area where the bartender and the owner was. I explained the situation to the owner, and he looked at me like a crazy person. He said, I have no idea what you're talking about, but you're free to look around for someone you recognize. I nodded and left awkwardly, thinking why he gave me this advice, when obviously I would have no idea what they look like since they were paraphrased on a podcast. I went home quite sullen. Uh, Anyway, hope I'll be more fortunate on another occasion. Take care, guys. Ah, that yeah. breaks my heart. It does break my heart. So here's what I'm going to do. Here's it does what I'm not gonna... bode. It does not bode well for at TV is great. I'll it does it. not bode <laughs> well at all. It does not bode well at all. So here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to say this. You know, I, I had this dream that we could connect people using the podcast alone. Right? That like, if I made an announcement and I set a specific time and place, that people would show up, and no one did. So. Rather than rely on a podcast, here's what here's what I'm gonna offer is all these guys from Decatur, if you guys want to meet, I will give you each other's email addresses if you each give me permission to do so. Right? And then you can like coordinate via email. So just email me at slashfilmcast at gmail.com, say you're from Decatur, and say I have permission to give the other random dudes who may or may not uh I don't know, be Mean people. I have no idea. I take no responsibility for what happens, but uh, I'm willing to connect you if you give me permission. So, need to throw that out there to try to make this Twain situation right. Also, everybody should just tweet at TV is great, <laughs> and just include at TV is great into this equation somehow. Because yeah. okay, Jeff, you're, you're really like just nice... you're just drunk with power now, Jeff. I <laughs> I want I want to do it all, Dave. Yeah. Okay. TV is great. It's from Charlotte, North Carolina, by the way. For yeah, but yeah. still, sounds like a really nice person. Okay. Uh. Anyway, you can always donate to the podcast by going to PayPal.me/slash/filmcast. That's PayPal.me/slash/the word filmcast. You can also go to slashfilm.com. Click on the slash filmcast tab. Use the PayPal links on the side of the page. Uh. And of course, we never want you to donate if it in any way causes you hardship. But if you want to declare a bounty on Dave Chen's head for the summer movie wager, or uh, you want to support what we're doing here, we'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dave, for all the who people. believes that nice people only live in Decatur. Yeah, yeah. There's there other cities, Dave. All right, let's move on to our review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. All the shooting. I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? No, I'm a stuntman. Look at me. So you still direct, huh? Still here. You can do anything you want to him. I hired you to be an actor, Rick. Not a TV cowboy. You're better than that. That was from the trailer of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the ninth film by writer-director Quentin Tarantino. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. A faded television actor and his stunt double strive to achieve fame and success in the film industry during the final years of Hollywood's golden age in 1969 Los Angeles. 
So this is Quentin Tarantino's ninth film. Of course, those of you who have paid money to see Quentin Tarantino's movies in theaters might wonder how he's classifying this as his ninth film when he's actually made 10 films. Well, the, the answer is that he still counts Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 as one film. Um, even though it was released separately, it's one movie, so this is his ninth film. Uh, Lindsay Romain, we spoke briefly at the beginning of the podcast about uh, your attachment to this set of people, the set of, I was going to say characters, but they're real life people. Uh, this point in time in Hollywood, uh, you se- seem to have a lot invested in this movie uh, and also kind of how it depicts these events. Can you tell us a little bit more about why this period of time and the events depicted in the film are so meaningful to you? Yeah, well, I think I got really interested in in Manson and kind of 1969 Hollywood, maybe when I was in high school. And it developed more as I got older, kind of into true crime stuff and whatnots. And I think the real reason that I got really into it is that it's one of the few uh, kind of events that's fully solved, you know, the tape murders and everything that's kind of tangentially related to this movie um, is something where there's just a ton of information about it. It's not like a Zodiac type thing where, you know, there's still a killer at large. There's a lot of uh, information out there. There's Helter Skelter, the book, there's, there's just a ton. So I think I was, I really latched on to that amount of information and how interesting all of that stuff sort of trickles into Hollywood and the studio system at the time and all of the people involved. So yeah, I really got into it in high school. It developed as I went through film school and college and everything. And it's just remained something that I'm really fascinated by. Before we continue, like, are there any resources you'd recommend, other than your excellent articles at Nerdist.com, of course, uh, for people who want to kind of study up on this point in time? Yeah, absolutely. The best number one resource I would always recommend is Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This podcast. She did an entire season about Charles Manson, and not just Charles Manson, but his relationship with Hollywood and with fame, which definitely bleeds into some of the topics of this movie. So she's definitely number one. I would also recommend Halter Skelter, like I mentioned. That's the book by Vincent Bugliosi, who was uh, worked on the case, uh, and he also just spent tons of years writing this book that sort of covers everything. Um, another one I always recommend is Joan Didion's essay, The White Album. She was really like on hand as all of these events played out and it kind of gives a firsthand experience. So those would be my three. All right. Well, thanks so much for that, Lindsay. I'm sure our listeners appreciate that. Um, we'll try to link to those in the show notes. Uh, so Lindsay, now having seen the film, uh, you know, and having a lot, having researched it extensively, knowing more about it than most people I know, what did you think of it? Yeah, I don't think I've ever been more nervous sitting down for a movie before in my life. Um, <laughs> just because I've spent, I, I'm sure you guys know in this business, like things come and go very fast. Uh, movies, you're talking about them one second and not the next. Uh, and so my coverage of this one is extended for years. I think I started writing it about uh, writing about it about two years ago. So and kind of continuously. So I was super duper nervous sitting down, trying not to have super high expectations or at least have like forgivable expectations. Um and I ended up really loving the movie. Uh, it really meant a lot to me to watch some of these things I care about so much depicted in the ways that they were. Uh, I found it really touching, uh, also very fascinating, as I'm sure we'll get into. There's a lot going on. But yeah, I was really, really relieved when it was over that I enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah, it's always really nerve-wracking when there's a movie you hope you like. Uh, you know, I remember it's actually like... Uh... 
Jeff, you mentioned Dan Drakenberg, recent guest on Culturally Relevant, and uh, that's like a, that's a movie where I'm thinking to myself, man, I really hope I like this one. You know what I mean? <laughs> because <laughs> if really, I don't, yeah. it's just going to create a lot of awkwardness, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's really it's when it's something that you know you're gonna have to write about too. It's like, oh man, if I don't like it, <laughs> it's gonna feel really miserable having to write about it for yeah. a long time. So, yeah. or it's gonna make everything that I did feel kind of like, you know, womp womp. So, uh, yeah, I was very <laughs> relieved, <laughs> and I I really loved the movie. Devinder Hardwar, your thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Uh, you know, I'll admit, I think for the first half of this movie, I just found it kind of inscrutable. You know, it's it's a lot of fun. Like, I, I liked hanging out with uh, DiCaprio's character and Brad Pitt's character. Like, it's, you know, these guys are just effortlessly ca- charismatic and entertaining. And I think this movie just kind of hinges on that. Um, but a lot of this movie is just, like, hanging out with them and seeing, like, how beaten down, um, you know, Rick Dalton is as a former, you know, star. Um there's there's a lot going on, but at the same time, there's very little going on. It, it was like a Seinfeld episode or something, right? <laughs> um, I think once the movie starts to take its shape and once you start to see where things are headed, um, I kind of I, I really got into it after that point. So honestly, I saw this movie on Thursday and I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. Uh, but I think like by the time I got to the end, I really enjoyed the experience. Um to me, yeah, everyone's saying this movie feels like a love letter to Hollywood, obviously, in the golden age. Um, I will say, like, I, that was never, like, that's not something I idolize at all. You know, I like that era of Hollywood, but I'm not obsessed with it. Um, so this movie definitely feels like something Tarantino made for himself. And just to, like, I don't know, recreate the world that he kind of grew up loving so much. But I think there's something deeper going on here, too. Like, this movie is surprisingly sweet. At times, it's surprisingly empathetic. Um, I think not since Jackie Brown. It may be a bit of Kill Bill, too. But Jackie Brown is this sweet, tender film about growing old and seeing, like, you know, the regrets of your life behind you and the limited opportunities ahead of you. And this movie juggles that also well, while really focusing it on a friendship that I think is really interesting and unique. Like, it's a it's a bromance there's a specific quote I'll mention in the spoiler section that I think really describes what the relationship is. And I think that it's just, it's kind of beautiful in what we all want a partner like this. And I liked hanging out with these guys. There are definitely all sorts of issues. We'll, we'll talk about Bruce Lee. We'll talk about like, I, I don't know, representation in general, but looking at this era of Hollywood, I think you, there's only kind of one way to really look at it, unfortunately. Um, and then the Manson stuff. I'm not a huge Manson scholar, uh, I kind of know the basics of the story, but I was really intrigued with the way everything went. Like it's all, I think it's handled very well, but also as we'll talk about in spoilers, I think he puts his spin on it in a really fascinating way. Jeff Kanata, thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Well, Dave, I <laughs> guess you could say my thoughts about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are best summed up in the form of a limerick. Hmm. Every new QT movie excites And this one has its delights. But what I didn't expect is the strange misdirect. Nearly three hours, but still feeling slight. Oh, wow. (laughs) All right. I agree with with a lot of what Devendra said. Um, This is a movie where you are hanging out with effortlessly charismatic Mm -hmm. people. And you're just getting a slice of their existence in this time. And that is inherently watchable and lovely. And it's full of small moments. It's, it takes its time. We, there's, 
minutes of this movie, many minutes of this movie of just being in a car with somebody, uh, just in a car. Uh, and I had a unique experience watching this because I live in Los Angeles. I work in Hollywood. Uh, there's a moment where somebody takes the sunset on-ramp onto the 101, and that's literally the on-ramp I take every single day when I leave work. So uh, the first restaurant I ever went to when I moved down to LA <laughs> was Casa Vega. I mean, it like, I, it's weird. It, 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 it's a movie about sort of this magical place and mm-hmm. all of the things in it seem very the ghosts, mo- like the ghosts of Hollywood too. Right. Doesn't right. it feel like you're, yeah, you're going through those places where those character went and yeah, it's hard not to feel that. But it's a movie that almost like reminds me, oh yeah, I live and work in a place that's special to most of the world. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to forget that when you're just going to those places and doing those things as a, as a part of your everyday life. Um, but this movie definitely is about Hollywood. It's about Los Angeles. It's about that period of time specifically, but I think it permeates beyond that period of time and is about what Hollywood is and was and should be perhaps. Um, it's about transitions in your life and in your professional life. Uh, I think it's only tangentially about the, the Manson murders and we'll get to more about that in spoilers. But I mean, I think it's a lovely movie. And like, like you said, Devendra, it's, it's a sweet movie, which is something I would not, I don't really expect from Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, It's like he is, his heart is softening in his old age or something. It's a sweet movie. Might be, it might have the record for the longest you go in a Quentin Tarantino movie before seeing blood. I don't know, maybe. (laughs) Um, And he does. He's he's an, an exquisite filmmaker, and he is able to carry these long, extended scenes and make them interesting and make me sit forward in my seat, even when not much is happening. And he's also able to establish tension in very ordinary moments, beautifully and masterfully. And then in this movie, unlike almost every one of his other films, he'll diffuse it. He'll take away the tension. He'll he'll undermine it. He'll it'll be a um, it'll be a swerve. It'll it's a misdirection to make you feel like, oh, my gosh, here we go. It's going to be Quentin Tarantino time. Oh, some, you know, dun, 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 you know, <laughs> all of you motherfuckers get it. We're here. We're in it. Here we go. And it's like, no, no, no. It's just this kind of sweet little moment. Uh, amazing, worry. amazing impression of a Quentin Tarantino movie, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. That's my. Yeah. Um, so. It's a it's a strange career step for him, and it is a movie that to me does feel like a trifle, uh, and, and I don't mean that as a as a pejorative. I it does feel like this sweet, easy, breezy, lovely little movie that kind of makes you feel good, which is weird for him. And uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, but it certainly subverted my expectations, and I don't think it is as substantial also feels like an insult, but it doesn't feel like a, a, like as big a meal as most of his movies do, even at the Mm -hmm. length that it is, it feels more like, um, a, an after dinner treat that you get to give yourself to make yourself, you know, to go off into the night feeling good. It's, it's an odd thing, but, uh, you know, it's a good movie. One I would recommend, I just didn't feel the wallop I usually do walking out of his movies. Mm. Well, let's get to spoilers pretty soon, but uh, you know, I, I will just say I agree with a lot of what 
all of you have said. I, I think that this is a movie I did not care for. You know, I it's my least favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. And I think that one of the reasons is I feel like the movie doesn't do enough to establish why you should care about this period in time. I think it assumes too much knowledge and too much affection for a period of time that maybe never existed, but is something that Quentin Tarantino clearly has a lot of affection for. When I think back to his other historical fiction that Quentin Tarantino has made, I mean, I firmly believe that Inglorious Bastards could be set in a fictional war and uh-huh. that it would be equally effective or almost equally as effective. It doesn't um, rely on your knowledge. Exactly. Of it doesn't rely II. like maybe you need to understand like a, on a very basic story level that like Hitler wants to kill all the Jews and you know like you, yeah. you need to understand like basic mechanics but like beyond that yeah, I, I am engrossed in the story of Shoshana and like how she wants to get revenge uh, for her family. Obviously, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to push back a little on you there, though. That movie does assume like, how can you not? How can you not bring your knowledge of like what the Jewish people went through, what the what the evil of Hitler represents? Like, it's all that movie depends so much on all that too. Like, that's the thing. I, well, I, I think what I'm proposing is I don't believe it does. I think that, like, yes, it, it is enhanced by those things. Like, if you are, if you have deep knowledge, if you do have uh, emotional connection or relationship. Yeah. The, um, the entire that, ending of that movie hinges on the fact that we know kind of history in a way, right? Uh, again, I disagree. I, I feel like if you had no sense of what happened, the movie's ending would still be very effective. And I don't feel that that's the same for this movie. And so, like, yeah, I mean, I I disagree. I think that that what I love about movies like Django Unchained and um, uh, and Inglorious Bastards is that it makes you care about this period of time. It makes you want to understand uh, why those periods of time were important and why what Quentin Tarantino is doing is so subversive about those periods of time. And I don't feel like he did that in this movie. I feel like there's... Yeah, a, I, I agree with you there. Like, yeah. this movie assumes much more. Yeah. And if you don't have that, that you know, it, it's kind of hard to to really be into it. I'll say, though, like, as I mentioned, I, I don't have this fondness for the golden age of Hollywood or anything. I like some older films. I, lo- you know, I really dig some of these actors. Uh, Tarantino is somebody who grew up worshipping this whole thing. So this is this is his like childhood dreams. This is like all of his fandom kind of poured into one thing. And this is what he's always done with his films. Um I hear you, Dave. I hear you a lot. Uh I do think there are deeper themes here going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the most effective things about the movie is the relationship between Leonardo DiCaprio's character and Brad Pitt. Um they obviously have vastly different lifestyles, but the, one of the things that the movie does very well is have a uh, interesting perspective on fame, right? And this obviously is an industry that even if you do relatively well, you can still feel like you're washed up and like the, the, the industry has, you know, churned you up and spit you out, you know, and uh, different people approach that in really different ways. And we see that in the three main characters, right, of uh, Sharon Tate, Rick Dalton and, and Cliff Booth. They each have a different approach, a different attitude towards fame and towards Hollywood. And it, it kind of provides this interesting snapshot of like how how it's possible to approach Hollywood, and um, and I like seeing that contrast. And obviously, these are extremely charismatic people, um, but it is a hangout movie. It does feel slight to me, as mm-hmm. as Jeff you said, and I, I 
I feel like you know I'm taking crazy pills here, at seeing all the uh, the praise for this movie because I just feel like on a fundamental storytelling level, uh, it does fall down for me for reasons I've already described, and um, and I feel like at best it is uh, it is kind of this touching portrait of the this friendship that these two guys have together. Um, but I don't know that it's that much more. But I'm happy for you guys to try to prove me wrong. In spoilers. So why don't we get to spoilers for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Trying to see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. So, Lindsay... Let's talk about some of the stuff that you wrote about over at Nerdist.com regarding this movie. I think that uh, you wrote actually a very interesting piece that was published, I think, today about the boat scene, right? In Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, It's called Let's Talk About That Boat Scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, We'll link to it in the show notes. Very, very short boat scene, right? Very tiny, (laughs) tiny, tiny moment. So there is a flashback to Cliff Booth uh, on a boat with his wife who is screaming at him and uh, he has like this harpoon pointed at her but like you never see what ends up happening um, and I think you lay it out really well that essentially there's two possibilities either he purposely murdered her and got away with it or he accident or she accidentally died she died as a result of an accident and he basically got pinned pinned with the blame and that that actually is a tragic thing for him right Yeah. Yeah. And I think the thing that I sort of laid out was that depending on your read on that moment, which is purposely ambiguous, it cuts away before you see anything. I think it'll really inform how you feel about that character going forward. You know, if you think he did it, the events of the rest of the movie play out much differently than if you think he's innocent. It's either, you know, a a movie about sort of restoring glory when you were like blamed for something that you didn't do, or it's a movie that's basically just a power fantasy. So yeah, I think it's a really like interesting almost Rorschach test that Tarantino mm-hmm. puts in there. Do you, do you have a specific read? Like, do you have an opinion on what happened on that boat? I really don't. I honestly like both interpretations of it. I don't know that I've left having a strong feeling. I think I took it at face value the first time. And the more I sit with it, the more I think it's purposely him leading us down two different roads. So yeah. I don't know if I have one take but I will say that I felt a lot of catharsis at the ending. So maybe I did side with the part of him that, you know, that thinks that he's innocent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, th- I think the thing about that scene for me, though, isn't that, like, yeah, of course, it's ambiguous as to what he did. The character of the wife, though, is portrayed in a very specific way. And I think that that to me is part of the issue, too. Like it talks it speaks to like all the complaints uh, people have always had about Tarantino's treatment of women. And like she's at least portrayed as this very like uh you know, she is she is shouting at him. She is degrading him as a man. Like it's it's a lot of things, and I think that can in a certain member, in a certain portion of the audience, uh, even if he killed her, they would think he's he. It's kind of okay. Like she had it coming, or something. And I think the fact that 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 possibility is there is kind of what grosses me out a little. That's that's my one thing there. Yeah, I think it's definitely a morality test, really, mm-hmm. like how you look at it informs all these different kind of layers. And I think it's an interesting, I mean, I don't even know how much we want to get into this, but I think it's interesting which actress he chose for that part, Rebecca Gayhart, who has her own kind of storied past. And 
I don't know how much he's trying to use that as like a meta commentary. I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of layers to some mm-hmm. of his choices in this movie that are hard to ignore. That scene also kind of recalls Natalie Wood's uh, supposed murder. So, oh, man. yeah, there's a lot of like Hollywood kind of baked into to certain things that he presents here. One of the most interesting things I think uh, about this movie is like that it seems to be uh, a very conservative movie culturally. You know, I, I, uh, what did you make? Did any of you have a chance to read AO Scott's review in the New York Times? Yeah. It was a great yeah. review. And, um, uh, here I'll just read a little bit of, of it. It, it. He says, quote, um, the political struggles of the decade are deep in the background, occasionally crackling through car radio static along with traffic and weather reports. The music we hear isn't a soundtrack of rebellion, but an anthology of pleasure. Tarantino's anti-ironic celebration of the mainstream popular culture of the time amounts to a sustained argument against the idea of counterculture. Those mm-hmm. who would disrupt, challenge, or destroy the last stable society on Earth are in the yeah. grip of an ideological, aesthetic, and moral error. Hippies aren't cool. Old-time he-men like Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth are cool, end quote. Mm-hmm. I mean, this yeah. movie is called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? It's a fairy tale, and he's presenting us his fairy tale vision of this. And clearly, yeah, uh, hippies, damn hippies, dirty hippies, um, people of color. There, there are a lot of people who aren't really as welcome in this presentation of Hollywood, and... That's that's definitely a legitimate like thing to call out here. I don't I don't know if he's like do you guys think he's actually like I it's, don't know. It's hard position, for me to watch yeah, this movie and not yeah, it's hard yeah. for me to watch this movie and not read it as a celebration of like the mainstream, right? Cuz yeah. cuz yeah. Rick Dalton is 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 like a personification of the mainstream of the but time. But it's not right? I, I mean there might be I don't I don't disagree with you guys, but I also feel like what Rick Dalton is going through. It's not even the mainstream of the time the movie is set. It's the mainstream of, of the past of the just hip- before that, you know, yeah. that yeah. he is, he is a vestige of a different mainstream mm. that is now trying to readjust to changing tastes and changing times. And so it's not even like, it's not even this conservatism of, of what the mainstream is now in the context of then <laughs> of the <Yeah>. movie. <laughs> it's more like, Weren't things great when like it before was all the clearer. movie even began? You're saying right, right. Yeah. right. It's it but, still feels like a celebration of that. Or like I think that's the whole point. We haven't even brought up like Sharon Tate and Margot Robbie's excellent portrayal of her. Um, yeah, you know, we'll we'll I'm sure we'll dive more into the ending. But I will say the ending, the fact that the movie ends in this way and basically you know it rewrites history. It lets Sharon Tate live. I think that's that's clearly a sign that. Man, he he is giving his fairy tale vision of what he really wants of this world, and I think that's partially what's really interesting about this film. But also, clearly, yeah, it's also the desire of like, yeah, classic Hollywood getting to succeed at all costs, as if the Manson murders didn't happen, as if there wasn't like a big cultural shock happening, right? Like, yeah. I think this is a world without that cultural shock. And I think it's interesting who he chooses to portray. Like, Rick Dalton mm-hmm. and Cliff Booth are fictional people, and Sharon Tate is a real person. Yeah. And Sharon Tate was also kind of a studio, uh, you know, manufactured by the studio type of actress, just like they were. You know, they're products of these westerns, and she was a product of, like, she came out of the Beverly Hillbillies, and just kind of these, like, backlot studio shows and stuff. So it's interesting how he bakes those two together. Uh, I don't know why the choice was for that, but I find it really fascinating. You mean the thing about the fact that we see actual footage of real Sharon Tate instead of, you know, what we get in in Leonardo DiCaprio placed into movies, he could have easily done that with Margot Robbie and decided not to actually let us see 
real Sharon Tate. It's an interesting choice for sure. It was very disorienting to me because I think earlier in the movie we'd seen Leo actually in right one of the yeah. classic films, right? And so then to see Margot Robbie fake Sharon Tate watching real Sharon Tate, it just was a little disorienting. But it's definitely something. It felt very. Uh, Tarantino-esque in the sense of playing with our reality. Uh, it, it also felt like this show of respect, almost like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- yeah, he. It, it felt like he was really putting her on a pedestal, mm. and having Margot sit and watch the real Sharon Tate in his movie. You know, she's sitting in the in the theater watching the real actress, um, and it's an extended sequence where she's. Mm-hmm. She's just sitting there watching her and enjoying her. Uh, I mean, I think there's layers to that. And and it, it, the whole ending feels to me like this gift he's giving himself, you know, yeah. like like almost like in Glorious Bastards, uh, you know, all we wanted to ever see was someone just kill Hitler, you know, just fuck I feel like it's, it's all one timeline, right? This is the this is what the audience wants, right? The audience wanted us to, like, blow, you defeat Hitler in a fire and then the same way, like the audience wants to make sure Sharon Tate is safe because she's well, I, here. Yeah. I see it slightly differently. I think it is more like, yeah, this crowd pleasing, let's fuck up Hitler. And then it's sort of like what Quentin wants. I just felt more personal to me in some mm-hmm. way. It felt like I just wanted her to live and I made a yeah. movie where she can. And it's not – there's no – grand consequence there's no like and then sharon went on to star in 50 movies and you know, I, I, I think the, there is a consequence so i think the way he portrays her right and some uh, there was a journalist in the new york times journalist who asked why sharon tate in this film didn't really have many lines of dialogue but having seen the movie i think it's really interesting what he does right because most of it is wordless most of it is just her going about her daily life and i think the fact that uh, you know for an actress whose legacy is basically has remained like in tragedy, you know, in the way she died, pregnant with her son, like Hollywood royalty, basically. How tragic is this? And for a movie to just bring her to life and let her let us see how she went to go buy a book, how let us see her enjoying her own, you know, her own work. I think there is something weird, like so sweet about that, too. Like this is Sharon Tate in a way I don't think we've ever seen really portrayed on TV or anything. No, that's something, I mean, as someone who's spent a lot of time writing about her career and has been a big fan of hers forever, I was moved to tears throughout this movie every time it showed her, especially the part where she's watching herself in the theater, because Sharon Tate is it's almost always represented as a victim. I don't think she's ever even been a part of any adaptation of any Charles Manson-related movie. This was really celebrating her career, too, not just her beauty and her body, which she was really known for. It's about her as an actress, which is something that was sort of snuffed short. You know, she never really got an opportunity to grow. And this movie is presupposing, like, here's a world where that could happen. And I don't know. I found it really touching. It's also interesting to me how much time is spent watching Leonardo DiCaprio in a different movie. Mm-hmm. There, a movie we don't have any context for or know anything about. I yeah. guess you're right. It is a just TV a Western show. TV show. Yeah, but it's just it's acting. Answer, yeah. It's just him acting, and clearly, uh, it, it seemed to me this is one of those inscrutable things, Dave, from, from from my perspective, and that is there is a lot of setup about Rick Dalton being a sort of average actor 
or maybe even below average. That uh, there's a lot of stuff at the beginning that is clearly intended to make him look not particularly skilled at his craft. And then he gets into this extended scene in this TV show where he, he's he's behind a mustache and he's under a wig and he has a hat on and all these things that he's were making intri- Deadwood in the 60s. Basically. Right. Yeah. All these things that were intri- along with Timothy Elephant. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing yeah. in this movie. Uh, anyway, he, he, all these things that were introduced as being ridiculous, like this ridiculous director asking these what in, in the context of that scene seem like ridiculous requests mm-hmm. to, from Dalton's point of view is is. Oh my God, you're going to make me wear a mustache and you're going to wear a hat. And then when we finally see it in action for a long time, this is not just a one or two quick moments of him in the context of shooting this project. We're with him for long stretches of it. He's phenomenal. I mean, clearly Tarantino told Leonardo DiCaprio to bring it to, to do, to act at the best of his ability. And that's quite something for Leonardo DiCaprio. Like he, he is actually quite good in these scenes. And I don't understand why so much time is given to that and why we're there. I mean, there's a sort of feeling of accomplishment that you Mm -hmm. get for this washed up guy to recapture or find something deeper in himself. But it, it, it is such a tangent for this movie to go on such a long stretch for us to be there with. It's very watchable. Now, I, I feel like it's the core of the movie, though, Jeff. Like it, it, what you're saying at the beginning, I don't think the movie ever really says he was a bad actor, right? It seemed like he was a good, like he was a good actor for his time. He was very popular. Then he started doing these like weird, like TV specials where he's dancing with the people and he's doing ads. Like he sells out. He gets corny. He gets lazy, right? And during that whole TV sequence, he has that chat with that with that young girl who is so focused, so dedicated. Like that chat, like completely reawakens him in a way and like juxtaposes like somebody who's kind of going around going through his career half-assed versus somebody who is so focused on everything she's doing. She kind of reawakens him in a way like that's, that's the big hinge there for me. Well, yeah, that, I, I, the I actually beautiful... agree with Devendra that like, this is kind of the point of the movie is that mm-hmm. uh, it, it is about him feeling washed up. And then in this beautiful moment, understanding that there's still something to the craft that, uh, is inherently powerful, inherently moving. And like, I, I think that when you are an actor, I, I would assume that the idea of art and commerce become very uh, intertwined in a way that's very complicated, right? And, and we, see, like, we see him like at night in his pool, like just hanging out and drinking. Like we see where he's kind of slid to. It's not great. Yeah. Um, and I think that th- this, uh, what this idea of him on this TV set shows is like the full kind of range of both the indignity of working on a set like this. I mean, the idea is that like actors often start in their own thing and then eventually just became like villains of the week on other shows, right? If they were like washing out. Yeah. And uh, the idea is for, for this character is that, hey, um, this used to be something I really loved and um, now I'm feeling like maybe I can't do it so well anymore. Maybe I don't have that much value anymore. And finding in, in himself like something that still makes him realize why he got into it in the first place like that's Mm -hmm. kind of the mini arc of that scene and i feel like it's crucial to his overall arc if he has one 
of coming to terms with his own fame. It should also be said, just to like bring in some some facts, uh, that the character's sort yeah. of loosely based on Burt Reynolds, who was uh, a TV actor, was on Gunsmoke, you know, and then went to Italy, became a spaghetti western star, and came back and became a huge movie star. So mm. his career kind of tracks with that also. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and, and who, the, the Brad Pitt relationship kind of tracks there, too. Hal like, Needham. That's, that's Hal yeah. Needham, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about a couple of other things. I mean, I, I will just say that uh, thinking and talking about this film for me has been pretty exhausting just because <laughs> I, because you're every, like, no, no, this is trash. Well, it's just, what are you ev- talking about? everyone loves it, you know? And it's like, what do we, you know, I don't want to like, listen, I, the, I don't want to rain Dave, on people's is, parade, right? Like this what? is how I felt about Django. You remember a review of yeah, Django yeah. where that was a fun movie. And I felt like everybody loved it. It was like, oh man, look at, look at this fun Western. And like uh, Jamie Foxx is great. And I sat there through that entire movie being like, I mean, it's fine. It's fine. It's not great. And I still feel that way about Django. So I, I feel you, Dave. I feel you, Dave. Like yeah. it's, uh, yeah, to I not mean, love a Tarantino feels almost like sacrilegious. Exactly. And I feel like, yeah, the, the Sharon Tate as a character didn't work for me at all. You know, I think that like that is a depiction in my opinion that depends heavily on uh, knowledge of her. But that's just, that, that is my surmising. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will say, like at Cannes, uh, you know, Dominger, you pointed out that somebody asked him, like, why didn't she, what happened to Sharon Tate's lines? Like, why didn't she have any lines? And Quentin Tarantino said, I reject your hypothesis uh, about her not having that many lines. And I thought, I thought, I think that's interesting. I mean, I think he's saying that, right? That what her depiction is on screen tells the whole story that he's trying to tell. Yeah. And uh, the characters built through, like, yeah, what happens on screen and how they interact. And it's not just words, right? This isn't just a play, I guess. Yeah, um, but for me, it just it didn't it, it it didn't exist for me as a character. She didn't exist for me as a character apart from real life Sharon Tate. Even though literally she watches real life Sharon Tate in the movie, like I, I just felt like what is there on screen gives me very little to latch onto emotionally. Uh, beside her just general fun-loving demeanor. And and I don't want to minimize anything, your reaction to the movie, Lindsay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, if it's genuinely yeah. moving for you, like I'm not saying you're wrong to be moved, but it just... I will... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I will say, one of the most surprising things that has happened to me this week is just realizing how many people don't know that much about her or don't know that much about the Manson yeah. I think yeah. I was a little taken aback by that. Obviously, I know like the intricate details and whatnot, but I assumed that there it was a had a larger impact really than what I've been seeing. So mm. that's just been interesting to me, kind of how maybe like short-sighted we are with history sometimes or, or just how, maybe not short-sighted, that's probably the wrong word, but like just how different things leave an impact on a culture and who they mean something to and who they don't. I also feel like if this movie had come out like 10 years ago, where um, the world wasn't a hellscape. Yeah. Where we could like, you know, kind of focus and it's like, oh, like just think about like history in a way. I'm like, oh, the world is stable. We don't have to worry about literally what our president does every weekend and just like fret about that. Like there, there is so much to consume. I'm not surprised people aren't as well versed in this stuff. Like I, I only tangentially know the story, but what I know of it is that, yeah, Sharon Tate was murdered. She was pregnant. And that sounds absolutely tragic to me. So that's what I went into this movie with. And it was kind of enough for me to like get some grasp of her character. I I just feel like the movie, uh, and I I don't at all, like I'm not at all trying to minimize what happened to Sharon Tate. Like I I understand it was very tragic. And so like, please do not interpret anything I say as like an attempt at minimizing that at all. But like, to me, it feels like the movie 
suffers from like if it was not about Sharon Tate, if it was about something else, or if it was a fictional story, I would say it suffers from prequelitis in the sense that like it, like these kind of knowing. Uh, this knowing fixation on these moments and these dates, and it's like, oh, like this is so significant because you've seen it later. Like uh, Han Solo's dice, you know what I mean? Like because you know about it later, like that's why we're going to focus on it now. But the movie itself does nothing to actually imbue these things with meaning. Um, that's that was that has been my yeah. reaction to it. But I think that's fair. That's fair. And this movie also like it expects you to know things. If you didn't know who Brad Pitt was. Right. If you didn't know who DiCaprio was, I think the way these movies interact, like the uh, I forget her name, but the young girl that DiCaprio acts against, she had no idea who he was. She was in a scene with Leonardo DiCaprio. She had no clue. Like she didn't have that baggage of it. And maybe that helped her like go up against him. But if you don't know who these people are, like Margot Robbie at this point, like we we kind of know her. We have a sense of her as an actress and what to expect. And like. All these, this is what Tarantino does with all of his films, right? He brings in these people and drags in the cultural baggage that we know of their of them as well. Like Travolta dancing in Pulp Fiction, you know why that's significant because of Saturday Night Fever, right? Like you know all that stuff. And I think he, this movie, I think more than any of the others, he's really relying on that. And certainly more in history than he ever has before. So someone pointed out to me on Twitter that the words Manson aren't even said in this movie yeah. at all. So yeah. if you don't know who Charles Manson is. He shows up for what, five seconds? Yeah, yeah. Seconds. yeah. And it's yeah. they call him Charlie. They never say Charles Manson. Yeah. So you, if you don't know who the Manson family is, you have no idea what's going on. I yeah. will say, though, my two favorite scenes in this movie are the 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 long extended sequence where Brad Pitt goes out to that, to the farm, uh, yeah. to the Spawn ranch. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, that, that sequence is, I think, masterful and it establishes tension and then, you know, getting to Bruce Dern and then it's like nothing, you know, the tension is completely deflated and nothing really happens. I mean, he beats the crap out of that poor kid, but, um, it, I, it's an exquisite. It's, it's still like fucked up and creepy, though, right? Like, oh, even, it's even an exquisite scene. Alive, it's like still, yeah, something's yeah. not right. Even though he's alive, something ain't right. Right, and I love, I, I love the bravado of Brad Pitt and his his blithe nonchalance in in walking into what everyone else recognizes as being extreme danger. It, <laughs> it, it, there's a there's a magic to that. It is, uh, it's an incredible sequence, and then it like. I think very soon after that, it's like six months later. And so you're like, what, why are we, what is this movie even doing? You call the cops, dude. Like what's up? What's up? Yeah. Here? But That's my, uh, my, my other favorite scene in this movie is just the simple moment of DiCaprio and Pitt watching that episode that, uh, Rick Dalton is in. Yeah. Doing a mystery just, science theater 3000 on it. Yeah, they're doing the, they're doing director's yeah, they're doing commentary. Yeah. They're doing the podcast. <laughs> doing I love director's commentary that. for that oh, episode. Okay. And I just love it. I mean, I've, I've done that so many times, uh, in things that I've been in or things that friends have been in, where you just like go over and then you're not even really watching their thing. They're just telling you all the behind the scenes of what it's like. And oh, that guy's a dick. And oh my God, it, it was so just beautiful and simple and sweet. And, it just felt like you were hanging out with those guys. It was, he had a seat, brought a six pack. Like you're yeah. just chilling out. You're just chilling out. And what then, I love about the sequence too, by the way, the FBI stuff, DiCaprio is so good. 
He's, I, I would watch that episode. It was so like just the way he handles that shotgun, the way he pulls up, like it's it's so it feels like a Michael Mann movie, the way he's yeah. interacting with it. I totally watch that. Yeah. And that, and the lead into that, too, is him like, hey, I thought maybe you might want to watch my things like, yeah, I brought a six. Like it's it's <laughs> the so, best, bro. The best, bro. Come it is on. So it is such a cool moment. You're like, More I love than these brother, guys. Less than a wife. Like yeah. that is, yeah, the perfect bro relationship, I guess. <laughs> that that is stuff that really did work for me in the movie though is that their relationship I thought was great and like you know the kind of guy you want to have by your side when things are going poorly for you you know mm-hmm. like it's it's very heartwarming and uh as you're saying Devinder when Leonardo DiCaprio's on set and fretting about his future and how no one cares about him anymore you feel like that's actually Leonardo DiCaprio doing that mm-hmm. you know like yeah. that he is potentially who knows what's going to happen but like he's like I see Zac Efron I know what's happening here pot- potentially yeah. approaching the end of an extremely successful career and wondering like uh, what he is good for, what what his function he'll serve in society uh, if he's no longer going to be in hit movies anymore uh, because he's been doing it for decades already and he's like one of the last big movie stars that we have. Uh, and eventually that clock is going to run out for him. Although I will say this movie is such a, such a, it shows us like what a gift DiCaprio is as an actor, I guess. Like it so hinges on his like effortless charisma like not since the great gatsby not since the great gatsby turned around with that martini and the fireworks blew up <laughs> behind him has you know dicaprio's star shined as brightly as in this film and i i love this movie i think just for that alone but also brad pitt like come on that the brad pitt doesn't get much time to really show off in this movie but at one point he jumps a fence he just like hops a fence and jumps <laughs> on a roof and then he takes off his shirt and that's it that's all brad pitt needs to do and you're like okay well, this is why he's a star. I get it. And then Margot Dude, Robbie. He's almost, he's what, 50? He's 55. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah, actually like, know if that was him jumping up there. I think that might have been. Uh, I don't know. They might have done, they, it, was him with know. The, it was him with his shirt off, Dave. Yeah, yeah. no, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Me, I was like, I got to do some push-ups or something. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen this movie twice now, and both times people hooted at that yeah. scene. <laughs> yeah. It was like, I saw it here at the, at the BAM in Brooklyn, Full House. I was sitting in the front, and I love doing that in a packed house. And people just erupted, like clapping, because <laughs> it comes out of nowhere. It's just like, it's a cat jumping to the top of a bookshelf. It's insane. <laughs> um, we also haven't mentioned, uh, I, I think, a uh, secret MVP of this movie is uh, Margaret Qualley who is loved her in the leftovers, love her in pretty much everything she does, but she is, she's so good in this movie too. Like at points she has like just silent movie moments with Brad Pitt and it's perfect. It's so perfect. No dialogue, just gestures, just eye contact. And it's so good. Yeah. She's really fantastic. I think there's something really, again, talking about like meta commentaries and whatnot, but most of the Manson girls in this movie are played by children of celebrities, which I found really interesting. She's Andy McDowell's daughter. Um, Kevin Smith's daughter is one of the Manson girls. Lena Dunham's in there. So it's just kind of fascinating. I don't really know what that's supposed to mean, but (laughs) it's something I clocked. I want to talk briefly about the Bruce Lee scene, and then I, we got to talk about the ending of this movie. Um, but yeah, Bruce Lee's in this movie for a few moments, and uh, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I'm going to put put that out there. Yeah. Um, I think because I, I was trying to kind of like square this circle in my head of, I believe Quentin Tarantino has a deep and abiding respect for Bruce Lee. 
Like mm-hmm. I, I as Kill you, Bill too. Yeah. You yeah. yeah, as Kill Bill. Like the out you know, she's the bride's wearing like Bruce Lee's outfit, you know, like you you can't make movies like Quentin Tarantino's made and not respect Bruce Lee, right? And uh and so like I believe on a fundamental level, like Quentin Tarantino respects Bruce Lee. Uh I don't feel like that uh translated into the depiction that we see on screen. I, I think that the uh depiction is accurate. Bruce Lee has often been known to be like an arrogant dude and uh could be a little kind bit of flam- Yeah, could yeah. be flamboyant. And so like I agree that like that's not necessarily inaccurate, but then in interviews, Quentin Tarantino has said like the reason he's in this movie is to show how much of a badass Cliff Booth is, right? To yes. show like Cliff yeah. Booth basically like defeats and humiliates him. You know, I know it's technically a tie, but Bruce Lee loses essentially. And uh you know, that just it, it did if if his aim was to show respect to Bruce Lee, I don't know that he accomplished it. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a perspective that the respect is who's the biggest badass that I could yeah. have my character to show who's right. you know, who would be the coolest person in the entire world to have my character be able to stand mm-hmm. up toe to toe with. That's where the respect comes from. It's like you don't you don't pick someone that you think is beneath your contempt if that you want them to show how awesome your yeah. character is. And we, yeah. we get that little flashback of Bruce Lee also training Sharon Tate, which is a thing he did. He was like a yeah. choreographer for a lot there's of stars. A, there's yeah. also a quick shot of him training Jay Sebring, uh, who in real life, they were really good friends. Jay Sebring's part of like why he became a breakout in Hollywood because he connected him with all of his clients. He was a famous, Jay Sebring was a famous hairstylist. So it is interesting like how they chose to weave him into this movie when they were very like legitimate people connected that are real characters in here so yeah yeah um uh, jeff i see where you're coming from but it i don't like i feel like if you're gonna show them being evenly matched what they did in the movie was not the way to do that you know yeah. um we could but, have done with that like the being slammed into the car yeah thing. yeah i mean Those, anyway yeah. like it just it just is tough to see you know this character who i a, a, a not character a human who i greatly revere uh, be treated in this way in this movie. Um, I, I did not feel it was respectful, but uh, you know, people have their own opinion on that. Let's talk. It's, about- it's kind of rough too, because by the way, in the in the clip that we see of Sharon Tate watching the film, she you know she's using Bruce Lee's choreography to defeat Nancy Kwan, and it's like there there's so much going on here. There's so much comment, like metatextual commentary going on around how tr- Hollywood treats like Asian culture and how it appropriates it and uses it against Asians basically right. and, yeah. and this film is actually now a part of that like now yeah. like the Hollywood machine doing that right things are rough there there's an early line where uh who's it Cliff Booth is like uh yeah um somebody's gonna Dalton's complaining about something and Cliff Booth is like not in front of the Mexicans and it's just like and everybody in my audience laughed at that and I'm like what are you laughing at Brooklyn Mexicans <laughs> Yeah, I this mean, is liber- this is Park Slip. This is liberal Brooklyn. And I look around, I was like, oh, you're laughing at that. Okay, thank you. Get Out was right. Well, <laughs> Quinn Tarantino has a long history of, of uh, placing racial slurs into his movies. Yeah. And there is no N word in this movie, at least. Yeah. Uh, well, in, in any case, let's talk about the ending of the movie. Uh, and Lindsay, I want to hear what your experience was watching this ending because. I, I'll just say, like, as somebody who was only vaguely familiar with the Sharon Tate murders, like, I didn't even know that this was the day that it was going to happen, right? So <laughs> it's I assume a weird that, countdown. yeah, yeah, I assume that you knew that, like, this was what the movie was leading towards, and so yeah. I'm curious, like, yeah, walk us through your like step by step reaction to this sequence. 
Well, it's actually really... It's, so as soon as the date comes up and it says August 8th, 1969, I was like, well, shit, that's the day that Sharon Tate got murdered. So uh, we're about to find out how this is going to play into things. So I was, I got really nervous in that moment because I had no idea. I avoided all spoilers. I didn't know what was going to happen. I assumed it would be something revisionist, but I wasn't really positive. Um, so yeah, as the events unfolded, I mean, just me with all of my kind of knowledge of that day, he follows that day to like a tea with what happened to Sharon Tate, the exact restaurant she ate at. Even there's a scene where like all four of the victims in real life, but the people are in her house are gathered around a piano singing um, Mamas and the Papas, which is sheet music that was found in the house. Like when the bodies were discovered, like he's got a real attention to detail there. So I, because of that was getting more nervous. I was like, Oh man, is it going to show this? So when it did lead up to it, it did show the the Manson family members in the car. I knew those were all the people involved in the murders. Um, yeah, I I was just really fascinated to see how it was going to play out. Um, for me, someone who has a lot of knowledge of this stuff, watching those people get brutalized was kind of cathartic. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. the yeah. things that they did in real life are ghastly. I mean, I don't want to get too specific but you know it involves stabbing an eighth month an eight month pregnant woman to death on top of other horrible crimes against humanity basically so for me watching like susan atkins get blown apart by a flamethrower <laughs> kind the, of the whole like uh kind the, of the face smashing the face yeah. smashing was like a lot but also <laughs> it's funny because i guess um cliff booth had taken that that the acid cigarette right yeah. so it's like he's he's having his drug fueled murder rampage as also like they famously were so i think that's that's right. kind of a weird reflection there no, totally. They were on acid when they committed all those crimes, too. So it is a weird inverse, for sure. Jeff, what was your kind of reaction to the ending and how it rewrites history? I mean, I definitely felt like it it mirrored Inglorious Bastards in, yeah. in its mm-hmm. level of over-the-top violence. It's, it is this intended to be, I believe, this cathartic, we're finally seeing the just desserts for what these monsters should have experienced, you know, that we're, we're living the, that fantasy of justice. Uh, and it's brutal justice. It's disturbing vigilante justice, but I think that's what he's going for is that same kind of thing of like, yeah, let's watch Hitler burn. Let's watch, you know, let's, let's watch these awful things that stole something from the world, stole this woman from the world and, and also, you know, a person, but, but this, this, artist from the world uh let's give them what we wish we could actually go back in time and give them and so i think you know in his way it felt like we're going more 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 you deserve this and this grindhouse justice right and he he doesn't have to answer to court he does he doesn't have to be historically accurate he could do whatever the hell he wants he's been doing this for a while not just in glorious bastards django is very much that like what if what if there was a slave who became a bounty hunter and who could like enact right. vengeance against slaveholders? And like that movie definitely plays on all those ideas. Um, there's, I, I do think like the simplicity of that portrayal certainly shines through though. Like in this movie, he portrays the Manson people as mostly like bumbling idiots. Uh, same for the Nazis in glorious bastards, same for, you know, the racists and the Ku Klux Klan in, um, in Django. I, I, reality clearly is a little more complex, I think. And I think it's scarier to think that, no, these are actually just normal, you know, rational functioning people who have hatred in their hearts. It's easier in a film to just be like, oh, they're just idiots. 
and that's simple. And I do think like that portrayal certainly you lose you lose the nuance of reality, but it, yeah. it makes for a better movie, I guess. Yeah, it is I, in- I agree. They are, they are kind of portrayed as bumbling fools, right? Like, yeah. And and Lindsay, I mean, per your knowledge of the situation, that doesn't seem like what they were in real life, right? No, they were pretty conniving, uh, scary people in real life, especially Susan Atkins. And they Tex wanted Watson. a race war. Like there was a lot going on there. Yeah, it yeah. leaves that whole like racism angle out of it in real life. They kind He's of... like the one time Tarantino <laughs> could have like confronted race. He's like, nah. Yeah, right. they basically I mean, for those who don't know, they started this sort of war against white people. They wanted to paint the crimes on the Black Panthers so that they would get blamed and start this race war with police. And it's very, very strange. The whole like machinations of the manson family but yeah basically they're horrible racists on top of being disgusting murderers <laughs> well thank god we're past all that in society <laughs> well yeah <laughs> komari vosa in the chat room actually brings up a good point um they say i don't think stopping the manson murders stops new hollywood the ending of the movie i think points to rick dalton becoming part of new hollywood things are better if the old guard comes along end quote mm, which i think is a, yeah i think that's a, a, a good reading of the movie uh, and it's also, as I pointed out earlier, like a fundamentally, like fairly culturally conservative reading of the movie, right? That like, don't like, you can, you can go off in bold new directions, but not too quickly, right? Not too, uh, abrasively, which is just a fascinating, uh, message for a movie made by Quentin Tarantino, who yep. has always been part of the cult- counterculture in my book, right? Like Pulp mm-hmm. Fiction was bold and original and daring when it first came out. Um, yeah. Yeah. So those were dogs. Yeah, it's interesting to me if you're talking about a guy who has famously numbered his movies and only has nine of them. If you're talking about a, a solid third of that nine is fundamentally about enacting cinematic justice. Yeah. You, you know, it's it's a very interesting it's a very interesting thing for his career, how often he's obsessed with the ability of cinema to just say mm-hmm. no this is how it should have gone. Yeah. All right. Well, let's speaking of nine movies, let's get to our rankings real quick and just kind of like what I'd like us to do is each of us run down the ranking and then just explain the highlights. Cool. cool. Um, so why don't we start with Lindsay? Like you, you've ranked Quentin Tarantino's movies. Um, let's start with like your least favorite and go to your favorite. Yeah. So my number nine is Reservoir Dogs, uh, which wow. is not, I think it's a great movie. It's just not, particularly compelling to me yeah. uh number eight i have death proof number seven i have hateful eight uh number six i have django unchained which Devendra, i agree with you i think it's a fine movie it's just not really one that does a lot for me um number five i have jackie brown uh for number four i have kill bill volumes one and two uh number three i have once upon a time in hollywood Number two, I have Pulp Fiction, and number one, I have Inglorious Bastards, mm. which is not just my favorite Tarantino movie, but it's my one of my very favorite movies ever yeah. of all time. Interesting, yeah, and yeah. it, it is the one that he calls his masterpiece. Yes, so. yes, very he, blatantly he calls it in the movie. In the yeah, movie. come on, guy, come in on, guy. In the movie, yeah, uh, uh, great list. Um, Devendra, why don't we do yours? Uh, nine for me, I think, uh, not not a huge surprise, is Django. Yeah. I, I have started rewatching that, and th- I'm getting more out of it, but, you know, it's still not my favorite. Eight is Death Proof. Totally agree with you, Lindsay. It's fun, but kind of inconsequential. Hateful Eight is seven. Uh, Reservoir Dogs at six. I like it. It's it's a fun movie. You know, it was really influential for me at the time, but I think everything else, so much of what he's done is better than that. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Falls at five for me. It's kind of about halfway. I think if I watch it more, I'll end up liking it more. But right now, it's kind of where I am. Pulp Fiction at number four. 
Jackie Brown at number three. I think Jackie Brown is a masterpiece. I think we should all be talking about this movie more. And Glorious Bastards at two, and that leaves Kill Bill one and two. Nice. At number one for me. And if, I'm just going to say a little bit here. I love those movies completely. I grew up on Hong Kong action movies. Um, and I think he embodies the spirit and the world of that stuff so well, while also bringing in a bit of spaghetti westerns. Uma Thurman is so good in those movies. Like, she should have been nominated. That's that's an Oscar, you know, worthy performance. And I think just because it's their exploitation films in a way, like they're schlocky action movies to most uh, audiences and certainly to the Academy that they didn't really get the respect they deserve. But I think there there's so much going on in those movies. And I love that it's also a movie where, you know, he gave up a bit of creative control for once. Like The Bride is a character he co-created with Uma Thurman. Uh, even though we saw the news about like how shitty he was to her on set, like that the car crash and that whole thing, like how not great and how not respectful he was towards her as an actor. Um, I'm not I'm not willing to cancel that movie because I think it is as much Uma Thurman's creation as it is his. Uh, yeah, Devere, I think we might have seen at least one of the Kill Bills together for the first time. Yeah. I also uh, I saw Kill Bill I saw Volume Two six times in theaters. By the mm-hmm. time I, the last run, like I was still in college at the time, like uh, living in one of the, it was like junior year for me. By the time the final week, the print was so tattered, it was so <laughs> dirty, it was it was a mess. You could barely like it was just so hard to see anything. And I was like, this is the perfect way to see this movie. <laughs> it, it, he yeah, it's Grindhouse at this point. Jeff Kanata, you're nine favorite Quentin Tarantino movies in order? Uh, well, I should say, before I even start, it's it's nine, but the it's like saying, what's your ninth favorite ice cream flavor? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, they're all great. I, I, I really do. He's very high on my list of favorite creators. Uh, so uh, number nine is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Wow. Uh, but again, again, you know, ninth favorite ice cream flavor. It's, it's still ice cream. You know what I'm saying? Um, number eight, Eight is Death Proof, which is, I think, a very underrated, great time. I really love that movie. It just doesn't compare to the rest of his stuff, but it, it's still better than most people's stuff. Uh, number seven, Jackie Brown. Number six, Django Unchained. Number five, Kill Bill. Number four, Hateful Eight. Number three, and I wrestled with the top three a lot. My Number three is Reservoir Dogs. Uh, number two is Inglorious Bastards, and number one is Pulp Fiction. And the reason I wrestled with it is because the pair of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction hit me mm-hmm. at the time that things hit people and mean everything. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was 1994, right? 1992, three, four. I was graduating from high school, going to college, thinking about wanting to get in to acting and theater and writing and creating. And, uh, I, I mean, you know, it, this is a cliche because he did this to so many people and resulted in so many bad movies, honestly, uh-huh. yeah. but it made me sit down and try to write a script. It, like I wanted to write a screenplay because of Quentin Tarantino, because I'm this theater kid who loves, you know, theater plays and all of a sudden there are movies that are as rich in language and as uh, as bold in structure and as about performance as a play is. And I'm like, oh, my God, here's a guy that gets it. Here's a guy that doesn't care about the rules and can have these giant monologues and these scenes where it's just about 
characters sitting down at a bar at a diner and talking to each other for minutes and minutes and minutes of times. He's not following all those screenwriting books. He's just creating. And those things were very, very special to me. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think I've watched Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction dozens and dozens of times in those years. He was making his own rules. He kind of rewrote so many things, right? It's yeah, and he had a million, a million copycats, most of them bad. Um, nobody could quite do it like him, but it it defined the the mid '90s were defined by his aesthetic, and it really I think created an entire generation of of people. I'm included, uh, you know that that shaped our vision of what you can do with a movie. Mm-hmm. Not that I make movies, but you know what I'm saying. Um, but it's also why I love Hateful Eight so much, which is why Hateful Eight is so high on my list. Like the audacity of doing a movie in 70 millimeter, this you're going to do your Western and then you put it in one room. Yeah. <laughs> like that is so awesome to me. I just love that. The audacity of that, the boldness of that, making it insanely watchable and tense and awesome in that one single location. It feels like a play. So I, I love that movie. Great list, Jeff. And it's one that I actually quite agree with in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I put my list up and uh, got a lot of. I almost got ratioed for my list <laughs> uh, on Twitter. I think uh, Matt Singer said, "Of course, there's no wrong way to make a list like this, except Dave's way." You know? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I respect people having their opinion on how bad my list is. I think that's that's completely fine. Um, but yeah, I, I do want to mention a couple of callouts on my list here. So well, you gotta my, say your list, dude. Yeah. I don't so know my it. my number ten is uh, once or number nine, I should say, is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, yeah, I mean, we already talked about some of the things I didn't like about it. I don't think I need to go into it. Number eight, Jackie Brown. This is the one I'm most willing to revise out of this entire. <laughs> yeah, this is madness. Cause, Both cause... of you, you too, Jeff. Like, come on, all right, come on, guys. <laughs> Again, ice cream flavors. You know what I'm saying? I know, I know. It's just that we've been, I remember when we were talking about, was it Bastards? Maybe, like, Dave, you were wondering, like, when is Tarantino going to make his mature movie, right? And I'm like, he did. Nobody, we don't talk about it. For some reason, Jackie Brown feels like a movie he would have made, like, before this one, right? The movie when he's older, Mm -hmm. a little wiser, and maybe thinking about aging. And somehow he did that after Pulp Fiction. It's insane. Can I tell you guys a funny, quick, funny story about Jackie Brown? Okay. So I'm in college when that movie comes out. And I'd never spent more than $10 on a haircut in my life at that point. And I'm an actor and in, in the acting program and hanging out with other actors. And this buddy of mine is talking about, you know, going to the salon to get his haircut and spending $20, $30 on a haircut. And I was like, what are you talking about? That's crazy. It's, that's, that's insane. He's like, no, 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 you got to try it, man. You come, you're going to, it's going to feel great. It's going to be awesome. You're going to go get a great haircut. And I'll, we'll go to a salon. So, I go to a salon with this guy. I'm like, ah, I mean, I could just go to Supercuts. Well, who cares? Who cares? And the I'm like, okay, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to try something cool. And so we go to the salon, and the the lady, the hairdresser, I guess is the word, uh, says, you know, what do you want me to do? And I go, I want to look like, <laughs> I want to look like Robert De Niro in Jackie Brown. Mm. <laughs> Jeff, why? What? He looks awesome in that movie, dude. Oh he my is god, so badass in that movie. He also looks terrible. He <laughs> it is the worst. Leo is the worst Robert De Niro has ever looked 
in a film. <laughs> and I think that's part of the appeal because I, he's just like a schlubby guy out of jail. Like that's all. Hundred percent disagree. I think he looks <laughs> so badass in that movie. At least I, I was did. just watching it again yesterday. I was like, man, De Niro really took a hit for this movie. No, nah, dude, he is <laughs> is he is rad. Do you have photos of this Jeff? <laughs> there are photos. I don't have them. Oh, we you got to show them. Lindsay Romain, uh, 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 Robert De Niro, and Jackie Brown. Attractive or uh, terrible? I'm going to go for terrible. <laughs> it's it's purposefully <laughs> awful. You? He's the a nice guy out of prison. Guy. He has no style. He had terrible. Like, it, it's also surprising, too. Like, how the hell is De Niro like a second stringer character in this in that movie and not uh, not the lead? You know? Yeah. Well, it's, he's, a, he's an actor. Uh, but anyway, suffice it to say, she didn't even hit the mark. Like even, even if she had, you know, even if you guys think that it had been bad, if she probably, like, to be honest, did me a favor. Is that what you're saying? Well, okay. But it was, it was (laughs) atrocious and terrible. And it, it meant that I would never go back to a salon uh, for many, many years. Uh, and I was very embarrassed and it was like that night we had a party and I went to this party and I looked like a total moron anyway that's a little story from my background go ahead dave with the rest of your list thanks for that jeff um so seven is death proof six is reservoir dogs and five is hateful eight and at this point i just want to comment on a few of these things so uh hateful eight that is a movie i really did not appreciate when it first came out and i think chris evangelista from slashfilm.com did a very uh interesting has a very interesting perspective on that movie (coughs) which is that he thinks that that movie basically just came out two years too early, you know. Uh, that if the Hateful Eight had come out in the uh, what do you call it during the Trump administration, uh, that the the cruelty of the administration would feel like the the movie is incisively commenting on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where, it, but it came out in 2015, which was like during the Obama era, and it's like it just felt extremely mean spirited. Uh, and so when I saw it, I was like, this is very, like, this is well-made, but it's very unappealing. And now I feel like it is like a very sharp commentary on, uh, cruelty and race relations in America. So, uh, I enjoy The Hateful Eight very much now. And that's why it's at my number five. Kill Bill 1 and 2, number four, uh, I, you know, think that they're brilliant movies, brilliant pastiche, uh, of many movies that I grew up loving. And, uh, I'll I'll always have a special place in my heart for those films. Django Unchained and, uh, is at number three and Inglorious Bastards at number two. I just really appreciate not only what Tarantino is trying to do with those movies in terms of rewriting history and redeeming our, our history, um, like America's history, but also the way in which he chooses to do it. Right. Uh, in very subversive and thought-provoking and provocative ways. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed both of those movies and, and what they tried to do. And I felt they, they accomplished what they tried to do, like which was very similar to what Once Upon a Time in Hollywood tried to do, but I feel like they did it way, way better. Um, seven slots on my list better than, than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, and my number one movie is Pulp Fiction. And I don't know that I think that Pulp Fiction is "quote unquote" the best Quentin Tarantino movie. I don't know that it is the most meaningful. I don't know that it's the it's a masterpiece. I don't think that it's going to necessarily stand the test of time in the way that some of his other movies do. But it's the first one of his movies I saw, and it kind of opened. You know, Jeff, you described very powerfully like how it opened up your mind to what movies mm-hmm. were possible, capable of. And you know, watching Pulp Fiction, I'm just like. 
every few moments I'm just dazzled by something that's happening in that movie, you know, in terms of like, yeah. oh, wow, I didn't know that dialogue could crackle in this way. I didn't know that you could um, subvert my expectations of uh, of the chronology in this way, mm-hmm. you know? Um, it kind of, it doesn't work stay, like any movie we had seen before in yeah. so many ways, yeah. Stay on one shot of a guy who's not talking while someone else gives a monologue, you know, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> So, Christopher Walken just pops in, yeah, in the middle of the movie. Exactly, it's like just okay, like the movie, crazy the things so like that, left and genius. right, and um, or like the MacGuffin being so extremely vague of like what's in that suitcase, you know, just like so many things being thrown at you uh, that are fascinating, that are interesting. Um, so uh, just like the moments are indelible in my mind, like I remember so many of the moments. Um, I was watching the movie the other day just to prepare for this podcast and. My wife walks in and she starts just quoting the movie, like quoting along with the movie because like we we know the scene so well. Um, so you know it's a, it's a very special movie. It's not necessarily his quote unquote best, but it's one that uh, is my favorite. So that's why it's my number one, Pulp Fiction. So that's really fascinating because I I saw Inglorious Bastards was my first Tarantino movie, which sounds wow. weird, but wow. I was young. I'm sorry, but <laughs> I think. Uh, I kind of I had the same experience with that that you guys had with Pulp Fiction. Uh, I kind of missed that cultural moment, but it was the first time I was really seeing something like that. And obviously went back and educated myself. But I do yeah. wonder if like the first one the you first see holds one that is like the most yeah. special one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and as you've gone on, like like nothing has topped that for you, right? Like, what yeah, what did you will... what did you like? Tell us what you like so much about that movie, uh, Lindsay. I think, well, I saw it at such a seminal time. I was, I saw it the day before I started film school. Oh, uh, wow. So was, wow. And I had, that's, that's moved... rough, by the way. It's like, uh, <laughs> live up to this. Yeah. Can you, can you do better than that? No, the, the dropout. You're not working. right. It just blew my mind open. That whole like opening prologue scene is just like yeah. some of the best acting I've ever seen in my life. Uh, just the way everything was weaved together and it all kind of culminates in this. It literally explosive ending. Uh, I think all the characters in that movie are just phenomenal. I care about all of them. It made me care. I mean, this sounds awful to say, but Hans Landa is such a fascinating character for me and one of yeah. my favorites. Sure. Uh, yeah, it just, I don't know. And I really related to Shoshana, who is just a very important character to me. So, yeah, it was a, a huge, huge movie for me. I, I think one main thing, by the way, is that I've always felt like he he wields cinema like a drug. Like he's a guy who he, he's just watched so much. He's studied so much. It is, it's in his blood. It's in his DNA. And like, he can call references. He can like, he could, he's basically like become one with the history of cinema. And that's kind of how a lot of this stuff can, he can make films like this. And I think that's the main appeal. There's certainly downsides to that in terms of like not being, as culturally aware as we'd like him to at times. But I think that's the main thing for me. Like there's always something, something really special about his films, even when they don't work for me. Yeah. Same. Well, I sort of, you may already know this, but I sort of feel a bit of responsibility now to uh, tell you about what it was like in the mid nineties. Uh, <laughs> because you wear onions on your belt, Jeff, <laughs> <laughs> I will. I just want you to know that Pulp Fiction was everywhere yeah. it was everywhere i was going to uc santa barbara at that time and every every dorm room had that picture of uma thurman lying on the bed as a poster 
every party you went to, you heard the soundtrack to Pulp Fiction. It was everywhere. And yeah, you know what we call that, Jeff? By the way, cultural relevance. I know yeah. how to say it. Yeah, uh, just saying. What I'm just saying. Yeah, no one's arguing that it wasn't culturally relevant. <laughs> Where are the Avatar posters? Where Where are the people jamming to the Avatar oh, soundtrack? God. Really? Now? Now you're gonna? <laughs> now we have to have this fight? Yeah, let's continue. I'm trying to tell Lindsay about the '90s. <laughs> I'm just saying that, like, it, Inglorious Bastards or anything. There, he hasn't ever really reached that since. But there right. was this this thing where like it was it was the, a moment where he was movies for everyone that was cool you know everyone that was up below a certain age and i still can't hear those songs and not be transported to that time because they, it was everywhere it was all around like, constantly that soundtrack was played out all the time and um and so, like, I'm I'm kind of incapable of looking at his movies objectively that way. Like, it is that movie, and even Reservoir Dogs too, is the same way. Where you know you hear the the um, the uh, Stephen Wright <laughs> intros to songs in mm -hmm. my head. You know, like the Bohemoth. All that stuff <laughs> is like in my in my DNA as well because it was it was everywhere. It was all over the place, and so. It's like more than a movie to me. It's more, you know, yeah. and to I think a generation. I'm not I'm not special in any way about that. I think it's like it happened to us in the 90s. I also want to uh -huh. say at this point, uh, shout out to Sally Menke, who yes. you know, she was his editor from the beginning. Um, she passed away far too soon. And I think I think part of my response to like Django and Hateful Eight and even this movie is that they feel they feel squishy in a way that his movies before didn't like they just they don't feel as tight. They don't feel as impactful. And I wonder I, I wonder how much of that just came down to like the really close relationship he had to Sally Menke in terms of how she constructed his film. So I that's something I still feel, especially with this movie. Um, but yeah, we can't talk about him without talking about her. Like it, it's like the Scorsese and Thelma Shoemaker thing. Like she is such a part of what made his movie special. All righty. Well, I think that is going to bring us to the end of our review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's been a great conversation, folks. I thank you for it. You can find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. You can email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes from adamwarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. This episode was edited by Beatty Zhang. Uh, and you should stay tuned to hear what we'll be reviewing next week. But until then, Lindsay Romain, where can people find more of your work on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Lindsay Romaine, or you can find me on Nerdist. How about you, Jeff Kanata? Oh, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. Uh, I also have a video game podcast. If you're into video games, why not check it out? It's called DLC. You can find it at 5x5.tv slash DLC. I also do a live play Dungeons and Dragons show. So if you're sick of hearing me talk about epic storytelling and you want to see if i can put up or shut up i'm telling a story uh i challenge you to hear my story and tell me if you think it's bad uh i would love to hear your opinions actually you can find that show it's called the dungeon run you can find it on youtube or as an audio podcast or you can tune in live when we record it wednesday nights at 6 p.m pacific time at caffeine.tv slash the dungeon run Divin your hard work and you can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra. I write about tech and gadget.com. And I'm also doing a tech QA show at nomortech.net. That's no with a K. Check out my stuff at culturallyrelevantshow.com, where I have a conversation with Dan Trachtenberg, friend of the show, 
director of 10 Cloverfield Lane, and a new trailer for the free-to-play video game Warframe. Next week, we'll be reviewing Hobbs and Shaw. Hobbs and Shaw. Or actually, I think the actual uh, uh, correct pronunciation is Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. Mm. So uh, it, it is the last big movie of the summer. And what a summer it's been, folks. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to breaking down whether it's a good action movie or whether it's terrible dreck. Uh, that's what you got to look forward to here on the Slash Filmcast next week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you later. He watched the movie.